Okay, good evening, everyone, and good yom tif. Today is this very special day, as we discussed in last week's class. Today is the 12th day, and we're going on. Tonight is already the 13th. There, the month of Tammuz. It's a very powerful time. It's the day that 95 years ago, we're celebrating the anniversary. The sixth Chabad Rebbe of Yosef Yitzchok was freed from his incarceration in a... In a um, very, 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 very harsh and dangerous, um, high security, if you can say, prison um, or jail in in the city of Leningrad. And he was then um, initially, chas v'shalom, God forbid, condemned to be killed. They exchanged it for a 10-year labor sentence in labor camp. Then they exchanged it on the third day of Tammuz, uh, on which they notified him or sent him off for a three-year exile. And then when he arrived and he was there for a few days, on his birthday, which today is the Rebbe's birthday, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak's birthday, um, 142nd, I think, birthday, um, they um, told him that he would be liberated. They couldn't give him the papers on that day because the offices were closed, so they the official liberation happened on the next day, on the 13th of Tammuz. The Rebbe then was completely free. He left, came back to his family and to his Hasidim in Russia. The joy was indescribable. And then um, a few months later, like of um, Elul Tishrei, three months later, after some Torah, uh, the Rebbe left Russia uh, for good, and uh, relocated to Riga, to Latvia, and then from there went on to Poland, was there for till the, till the war broke out, till the Second World War broke out, and then from there he was rescued and came to the United States of America, established his center for Hasidism, and from there the light shines on across the entire world. So today is the 12th day of Tammuz, the day that the Rebbe was completely freed or notified. And tonight is the 13th of, of Tammuz. So yearly in Chabad, there is a, this, these two days are instituted as a real Yom Tif. Um, and we should treat it like a full Yom Tif. We should have a festive meal. We should dress in, in Yom Tif clothing. I'm wearing my Shabbos clothing. Um, it is a Yom Tif. Sometimes people, if we're living on the outer peripher- peripheral of Judaism, which means we're not tuning into the inner continuity and godly engagement. So we're looking at Judaism kind of like something that happened thousands of years ago and like the main events of Judaism in biblical times. And now we feel we're just kind of like holding on by a thread. Then yes, I had a hard time with this as well. How do you make a new Yom Tif? The sages only instituted there is the biblical holidays and there is the Hanukkah and Purim, which are instituted by our sages. But to go and institute a holiday, a full-fledged holiday, today's days, is, uh, seems to be foreign. It seems to be strange to uh, the uh, modern Jew or even the, even the very uh, religious Jew, but one that is not, doesn't have his, his or her heart onto the pulse of things. If you're living a little deeper, Especially when you learn Hasidus and you realize that we're that uh, that that God is just as engaged and just as involved, and the 
process of Judaism is being realized and the actualized through the great divine messengers that are leading the world to the ultimate redemption. And when you understand and appreciate that, then it becomes no problem to say today, good yomtif. For me personally, it is a very special yomtif. As tomorrow we're going to be having a Fabrengen, and I will maybe share a little bit of my own personal journey. But I came to Chabad. My discovery of Hasidus Chabad was on this day 33 years ago. So, um, so I celebrate this, this, these two days with extra um, involvement. It's very meaningful to me. So now um, I'd like to connect uh, just very briefly the Parsha to something that I learned and studied today, which is very inspiring to me, and I hope it will be very inspiring to you as well. The empowerment of the enormity of the day. The idea over here is that this week in the Parsha is the, is the Parsha's Bullock. First of all, anybody that wants to dedicate the class can do so. Um, it's still available. That means it hasn't been dedicated yet. Last week we had a dedication for someone's birthday on last week's class. I'm going to mention it now. Uh, Ari Roth, and this was in honor of his birthday, Mashem Ben Shim. That was for last week's class. So anybody that's listening to the class and wants to dedicate this week's in honor of Yud Beis Tamas or a birthday or a loved one, a yard site or whatever, whatever it is that's on your mind for a merit of a Rafur Shalema, a merit of hopefully any, any, any miraculous thing that we need. Today's a day for miracles or just to do a mitzvah. Okay. So um, this week's parasha, Pasha's Bullock, is talks about, you know, the um, evil prophet. Um, his name is Bilam, that was hired by the king of Moab. His name was Balak to curse the Jewish people. In the end, God turns the curses into blessings. And at the very conclusion of the Torah portion, we read how Bilam, the prophet, gives us the most, the greatest prophecies ever. He prophesizes regarding the future, uh, the time of Mashiach. It is the most explicit prophecies regarding the Messianic age. Uh, more than in any other prophets. In other words, even Moshe, Moses did not give us such clear prophecies like the prophecies that are given to us by Bilam, the antithesis to Moshe, an evil man, but yet God spoke through him. I guess that has to do with the idea that when Mashiach comes, all, all darkness will be transformed. And even an evil prophet who is bent to bringing upon the Jewish people a Holocaust, even he, his mouth, you know, is 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 used as a channel for blessings and not for curses to the ultimate blessing, the coming of Mashiach. So it's really, really fantastic. It now, particularly when Bilam um, prophesizes about Mashiach, it's not so much about the Messianic era, about Mashiach's times. Moshe talks about that. Moshe talks about in Parshas Nitzavim, in, in the end of Sefer Devarim, Moshe talks about Messianic age. Time of um, of uh, of, but um, the time like how the Jewish people are going to repent and come back, and God is going to circumcise our hearts, and we're going to serve Him, and, and God is going to do with us extra good. That's discussed over there, even more than He's ever done for us. Uh, Bilam particularly is focusing his energy on the on the person, on Mashiach Himself. He says that a star will shoot forth from forth from the, from Jacob. Um, and a ruler, a ruling power will stand up 
from amongst the Jewish people, which is referring to Mashiach, various different interpretations, how this refers to Mashiach, who it's referring to, Rashi as his interpretation, Rambam as his interpretation, the various different Mepharshim. But everybody, according to all of them, there is some of this prophecy that he's discussing over here that's referring to the Davidic kingdom. According to Rambam, some of it is referring to King David himself, the David HaMelech, the seed, and then eventually the ultimate um, power, the ultimate ruler of, and uh, the one who leads the world to its ultimate redemption and ultimate unification with Hashem. And uh, so according to everybody, it's, it's, it, it, it is referring to, to Mashiach to a certain degree. And uh, it, it turns out that the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, who had his redemption during this time, is always, the Yud Beis and Yud Gimel Tamos is always related to Pasha's Bolok and Pasha's Pinchas. Pinchas we understand because Pinchas is the great hero who acts with utter selflessness for God's sake. And the previous Rebbe's fight and and um, dedication in Soviet in Soviet Russia was in a way, as we're going to speak about, where he risked his life. He literally risked everything for his to, for, to make sure for the continuity of Judaism and the perseverance of Torah and mitzvahs. So the previous Rebbe was a modern day, if you can say modern day, uh, a recent a recent biblical replication of Pinchas, who stood up and God literally tips his hat to Pinchas, says, you're like unbelievable. That's next week's Torah portion. But the relationship to this week's parsha is because it's speaking about the rising of the king, the restoration of the Davidic kingship, which it's clear that the previous Rebbe is paving the way for the restoration of the Davidic kingship. And he's, his geula and his redemption is already the like seeds of the complete redemption. Now, um, One thing we see in the Parsha, that Mashiach is going to dominate over the entire world. The verses that are discussed in Parsha's Balak describes how he's going to literally be master over all of humanity and all over the world. How he's going to wipe out all the that which is dark in this world and he's going to elevate the rest of humanity. So and he's going to have complete, absolute dominion over the entire world, which is... When one wonders and one sees today's days, they're projecting that on November 15th, that's the projection the world is going to hit 8 billion people. Now to believe that there will be a great saintly Jewish sage, a tzaddik, who will come and the entire world will heed to every single one of his instructions with absolute obedience and with absolute love, awe and admiration is something hard to come about. Like how is that going to happen? How is everybody, what's the power behind Mashiach? And we understand that Mashiach's power is because he's at the peak of nullification and surrender to God. He's at the peak of selflessness, a selflessness that we can't even begin to imagine. A being who is so not a being, that's that's the greatness. The greatness of Mashiach is not in who he is, but who he is not, meaning the not that he, he represents. He represents utter nothingness, and because of his complete nothingness, he becomes a complete conduit and a channel for God. And we understand that in front of the infinite, who is the truth of all of existence, no one can block. When God chooses to reveal himself within the world, 
And his revelation in the world will be through his servant, the one who is his ultimate servant, the most humble of humble, the low, the, the most nullified of nullified, the most abnegated of abnegated. Um, through him, the power of Hashem will be revealed. And therefore, he will have, Mashiach will have this beyond incredible influence and and on 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 everything, on all of creation and all of the world, but it's not him. He is like a window through which God's light shines through him. So he is the cleanest window ever to live. Moses was a very clean window, which means he had no beingness. And that's why Moshe is one of the most influential individuals in the world. He brought the Torah, probably to Mashiach, the most influential individual. But Mashiach even triumphs Moshe in his influence on the world because he reaches the epitome. He's the, this is the quality of King David. The King David HaMelech was said about himself, I am but a worm, I'm not a person. He's a master, he was a king over Israel. He had such power, such, so much greatness, and yet he calls himself poor and destitute. And that's Mashiach. He's very, very, very humble. The epitome of humility. So I'd like to give a little peek into the mind of a messianic figure. How a Mashiach, how Mashiach operates, how this utter nullification, surrender, and complete non-being that runs in the blood of the Davidic family. Not just in King David back then. Not just in Moshe of biblical times. Not just in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, the patriarchs, and then the mothers who were completely surrendered to God, but also in modern times, those who are carrying the the staff of of Mashiach throughout the ages, as we know that Mashiach's energy flows through all the generations, and in every generation, should God choose, there's a person worthy to to act to be to actualize Mashiach in this world, and uh, it's clear that the previous Rebbe is that is that being as we shall now in his times. So when we're celebrating him, we're celebrating, and we, what we're going to do today is we're going to get a little peek into the psyche. Now, for us coarse people, to peek into the psyche of such elevated, supreme, high being is impossible. We don't even know what to think. We can't even begin to imagine how the mind of these people, of these giants, are wired, what their motivations are. We can't even imagine levels of selflessness. So what we're going to do today is we're going to study a teaching from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the previous Rebbe's son-in-law and successor, which he is took on one of his talks of not today on Yud Beis Tammuz, but this was on Gimel Tammuz. As I mentioned, Gimel Tammuz, the third day of Tammuz, about nine days ago, um, is the day that the previous Rebbe was initially notified that when they sent him, he was partially freed because he went out of jail, he went out of prison, but he was sent off to um, exile. So the Friedrich Rebbe on that day, people gathered, people, the Hasidim were so excited to see the Rebbe. They gathered to the train station to, to, on the one hand, greet him and look at his holy continence and be inspired by him. Remember, they were going through crushing persecution and he was their only you know, a bit of light. They looked up to the Rebbe. He strengthened their soul. He soothed their pain and he elevated them. And the main thing was he encouraged them to fight the fight, not to throw in the towel, to make sure that their children get a Jewish education. 
and not send their kids to the to the schools that the communists wanted to indoctrinate their children that they shouldn't believe in God and drop all, everything. Had that happened, there wouldn't be a remnant of Judaism in Russia. Previous Rebbe won. It's amazing. Talk about Mashiach having power and overpowering eight billion people. Well, here you have a little a little a little example of that. You have a person who's fighting a government that's in controlling 187 million people at the time. And the Friedrich Rebbe is standing himself against an enormous government like that. And he wins. So that's not because he's a frail man. He's a frail elderly person. How old was he then? Um, he lived to 70. So he was in his, uh, he was then in his 50, around 50 years old, but he wasn't such a strong, he was already, after that for sure, he was pretty frail after, after what he endured. It wasn't as anomian. Obviously, they 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 had the biggest brutes, k- killers, and 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 you know, you know, bull, we call them bulvanas, powerful, strong, uh, you know. And they broke these people. They broke them down. Being in their jails for uh, not more than two weeks can break a person completely, even if you are, um, even if you are, uh, who knows who. And yet, the Friedrich Rebbe overpowered them. And the reason he prevailed and he overpowered them is because, again, going back, because of his self-abnegation, because he did not exist. So it's not him fighting them. It's him. It's the one he represents. They're fighting the Almighty. They're fighting God. God is much stronger than a government representing 187 billion people, million people. God is much stronger than all the guns and all the tanks and all their prisons and all their might. So the pre- I mean, here we're going to have exact exact little example of that. When he stood at the train station, the previous Rebbe gave a short little talk, a little pep talk, if you can say. A, and, and, and if you understand, this wasn't the most dangerous of situations because he was arrested because of his influence to strengthen Judaism against the will of these, of these, uh, of these, uh, of the, these government officials. So that's why they arrested him. He finally gained his release. So you would think, now he didn't, he didn't, he was still under their, their control because they were sending him to three years of exile after he barely escaped death. So now, and he's still under, it's not like he left the prison door. They're still, he's outside of the door, but he's surrounded by the guards. He's in the train station. They're listening to him. He's meeting with the Jews and he takes the opportunity then to continue strengthening the Jewish people in keeping, in defying the Soviet government. So that is really, if you would say, suicidal. Because in any second, not much, they can put him on the train and then stop the train, rearrest him, bring him right back to prison, and he knows what was going on over there. Every day he saw, they showed him soldiers, gods with bloody clothing coming in. He saw the blood-stained walls of people that were literally whipped to death, tortured to death. He saw it, he heard the screams, he describes it in his diary. It's an amazing book to read called The Heroic Soul. It's a book you can purchase that book. And also A Prince in Prison, two books that were written, which describe what he had, what he endured. He knew what they're capable of. He was barely out, and yet it didn't matter to him. He knew that the Russian Jewish Russian Jewry is dependent on him. So he stood there in absolute defiance, and he encouraged the Jews that were there. But what what but in order to appreciate and understand the mind, the, the purity of soul 
of such an individual, in order to understand what is his deepest motivation, what's driving him, he said a statement then. Our Rebbe, that means his Rebbe, the successor, studies that statement that he says very, very carefully, literally does a a, a, a very thorough analysis on every word that he said. And as a result of that analysis, comes out with an incredible picture. Literally, he's doing an x-ray of what's going on, giving us a little glimpse at the inner world of a tzaddik. Now, we would never be able to figure out such lofty, such such sublimity, such such selflessness, such such self-transcendence, because we don't even know what to think. But his successor, who is a continuation to him and furthered his work, who is also a tzaddik, a saintly individual, and also a rebbe, he's able to tune into the words of his father-in-law. He gets it. And because he gets it, he was able to speak it and reveal it in one of his discourses. He shared it with us. And that's what I'd like to share with you today. And then we can understand why people like this are those who can channel God into this world all the way to the ultimate redemption. So let's take a look at what the previous Rebbe said, standing on the platform to the Jews who came to say goodbye to him when he's on his way for a three-year exile. So he said like this, he opened up his question, his, his statement like this, We are requesting from God. He opens up with a verse from Kings that his grandfather said, which grandfather? Great, 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 many, many, many generations. The Chabad leadership, starting with the with Reb Shneir Zalman of Liadi, a direct descendant of King David. This is of this the the Rebbe, in his book Hayyim Yaim, the seventh Rebbe, gave us a short little book with little notes and little inspiration for dates. His first book he published, I think the first book might have been Dagadish al Pesach, but this is the second one, or this is the first. I'm not exactly sure. Got to check it out. This is before he became Rebbe. The Rebbe gave us a a short little book with short little Hasidic teachings to live by day by day. And there's a custom by Chabad Hasidim. I do it as well. To every single day to study one of these short little teachings. In his introduction over there, he brings a biography of all all the Chabad Rebbe's, their lives. And before he begins with the first one, Rav Zalman of Liadi, he gives us his lineage. And over there, he gives us that the Rebner Zalman of Liadi is the seventh generation to the Maharal of Prague. He's the eighth one, actually. He's the eighth descendant to the Maharal of Prague, who's the great 15th century or 16th century giant of giant. He's the one who's known, have actually created a human being out of clay with Kabbalistic whatever, a golem to assist him in various different things. Uh, some people say it's legend or whatever it is, but this is just the type of person that we're talking about. And Rabbi Yehuda Lowy, the Maral of Prague, is the seventh generation to is the seventh generation to um, no. And the Maral of Prague, he his lineage goes back to King David, the David the Melech. So um, when the Rebbe says over here, he quotes a statement, a verse that Shlomo Melech, King Solomon, said, I think he said it, I'm almost positive, 
is a prayer that he said when he was inaugurating the first temple. Okay? King Solomon was the one who built the, the temple. David HaMelech was the one, King David was the one who prepared the, 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 the temple mount. He purchased the land, he prepared, and he prepared all the resources they needed for building. But Shlomo HaMelech was the one who actually built it. And when he built it, he said a prayer after he built it, when he, brought, when he was bringing in the ark. And during that prayer, he said this, this verse. You might be familiar with it. First of all, we say it in our daily prayers after the Shemona Esrei later in the davening. Um, and also, the um, time we say it loudly is we say it during the Hakafis on Simchas Torah. When we're taking out the Torah scroll to dance on the happiest day of the year, we say like a bunch of verses over there. I think 19 verses, maybe more. I'm not, I don't remember how many verses we say. And one of them are collected from all places of the Tanakh, of Scripture. And this is one of the verses. So the Friedegreb opens up his, his statement that he's going to tell the Hasidim that are waiting for him at the platform. And he says, we ask by Hashem, May God, our God, be with us. Like he was with our fathers. He should never forsake us. He should never let go of us. Or rather, he should never let go of us. He shouldn't forsake us. That's a prayer that Shlomo HaMelech said. Now the previous Rebbe, after he quotes this, so in other words, he's standing there, at such a vulnerable, at such a dangerous moment, but a moment that is bittersweet, because it's a moment of thanks to God for saving him, but at the same time, um, you know, he knows the perils are not over yet. He still has a very dangerous journey. He's asking Hashem to be with him, like he was with his forefathers. Who are the forefathers? On one level, you can say he's referring to his actual ancestors, is, is the previous, the Rebbe before him and the Rebbe's before, going up a few generations, all the way to the, you know, the Alter Rebbe and then to the Balshemtov and the like. Or he's referring to the, the, the forefathers of the Jewish people of all of Israel, right? The patriarchs and the matriarchs, that God was with, with them. So he's asking for divine presence. Hashem should be accompaniment. Hashem should be with him. And then he translates it in Yiddish. He says, Hashem Yisbarach zal zayn metuns. Hashem should be with us. On that zayn metuns. And God will be with us. Because interesting, the word Yehi in Hebrew can mean he should. And then it would mean a prayer. We're asking. He should be with us. We don't know if he will be with us. We're saying, let it be that God should be with us. But also, Yehi can also mean a statement. God will be with us. It can be read in Hebrew both as a request and as a statement, as a promise. So the Rebbe combines them both. He says, we are asking God. So he's clearly speaking that he is now saying a prayer. And he's asking God that God should be, should be with us and that he will be with us. Like he was with our fathers. Now he goes to explain 
when we say like he was with our fathers, is that just, you know, a comparison? Just like he was with them, let him be with us. Or is there some kind of novelty? The prayer over here, there's some kind of a chiddush, some kind of a novelty in the prayer. So he explains, yes. There is a, a novelty in this request. Why is it novel? Because really we are undeserving. We can't compare ourselves to our fathers. That's what he continues. Even though we can't compare ourselves at all to our fathers. Which means we can't compare ourselves to the patriarchs and the matriarchs on their level of service. Why not? Why can't we? Because our forefathers were those who were people of complete self-sacrifice for for the for Torah and mitzvot. In other words, for the divine will, they sacrificed, they laid themselves completely on the line and gave up everything. And therefore, they're on a much higher level than us. Implying, what is he implying? That we're not that way. We are not people who are sacrificing our lives for Torah and mitzvahs. But our forefathers were. And therefore, the fact that God was accompanying and with the forefathers, our, our, our forefathers, well, they deserved it. Because they completely, they had surrendered themselves completely to Hashem. With absolute devotion and self-sacrifice. But we are not like our forefathers. But nevertheless, we are still praying that God should be with us. Okay? So again, let's, let's, let's see the his amazing prayer over here. A man standing on the platform. He just escaped death. He is speaking to the to to the to his followers. And again, these are his followers who eventually are going to triumph. And take down the Soviet regime. And allow for Jews to leave Russia. When the Iron Curtain came down. Millions of Jews can leave Russia. And today's days Jews can study Torah and do mitzvahs across across Russia. Russia has its own issues with its war of Ukraine. But that's besides the point. But the, the, the observance. There's no religious persecution now in Russia. The Rebbe is now talking to his Hasidim during the darkest moments of the Stalin regime. What is he saying to them? First, he's, he's not talking to them. First, he's praying. A public prayer loud on the platform. He's saying we're praying to God that God should be with us and he will be with us. Like he was with our fathers. And this is again the prayer that King Solomon said. When Shlomo Melech said. I'll stop over here and I'll say why is he saying Shlomo Melech's prayer? The Rebbe does not say this, but this is my own little nugget because Shlomo Melech is building the Beis Amingda. Shlomo Melech is continuing the work of Mashiach. What do you think the building of the first temple was? It was the manifestation. It's Mashiach's work. It's to build a home for God in this world, building God's empire. The previous Rebbe fighting in the darkest, the darkest moments of exile, the farthest possible state from building God's empire. The forces of unholiness are running rampage. They are 
they are sub- seemingly almost ready to subdue holiness and to vanquish any trace of godliness from the world. Yet at that moment, the messianic force in this world is fighting its, is might look like it's the weakest, but it's at that moment in its strongest, in its strongest power. And, and, and therefore he's praying the same prayer. Shlomo's praying. Shlomo's saying, I need success in building this temple. Because I know I can't do it on my own. I can only do it with divine assistance. And the same divine assistance that there was with my parents should be with me. So the previous Reb is actually echoing. He's echoing King Solomon's prayer. Because he's now fighting that very same battle. To bring victory for holiness and godliness in this world. So he's echoing that very same prayer of King Solomon. This is, this is the way I take it. The Friedrich Rebbe is not just sitting here with a Tillim like we say, and we're saying a capital Tehillim. <laughs> this is cosmic. This is a cosmic statement, like when King Solomon is standing and, and, on the, and have millions of Jews around him building the temple. The previous Rebbe has a small hub of Hasidim, but it's the same divine force. What, the, the, the point that I'm trying to make, that this is the, how do you call it, the eye of the storm. Of holiness. This is the center, the vortex of where godliness is in the world. It's on that train station at that moment. It seems like the forces of anti-holy are on full power. The Rebbe is barely alive, seemingly by their mercy. And yet, he's really dominating. And he's praying that he wants the divine assistance, that Hashem should be with him at this moment, so that he should ultimately be able to win. And he says, I can't compare myself to my fathers because they were people of, 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 of sacrifice. They were, they, they, they were ready to give up their lives. We're not the same like them. Yet God should be with us. Then he, st- then he stood up very tall, and I'm not going to say the rest of what he said because I'm, that's not, I just want to give today's class just on those first few, on this first prayer that he said. But then he goes on and he speaks to the entire world. He spoke to Hitler. He spoke to Stalin. He spoke to all the future monsters who think that they will dictate to the Jewish people and they will stop the messianic, you know, God's will from being implemented. At the same time, he's speaking to the Jewish people. And he's saying, you need to know, victory is ours, he's basically saying. And even though we're at at the moment of the biggest uh, oppression, this is in 1927, this is when the Jewish people were literally being beaten from every side and a massive holocaust is coming their way. A tsunami of blood and, 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 and unimaginable suffering is, is, is blowing. The winds of the biggest horrific destruction of the Jewish people is rolling in. And, not, and in addition to that, a country a, 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 of, of, uh, led by a tyrant like Stalin who is who blood means absolutely nothing to him, can kill millions of people to have his way, has set into motion a powerful machine to uproot the name of God in the land and to uproot Jewish observance. And the previous Rebbe looks them both in the eye, Hitler and Stalin, and he says, you need to know that even though God was the one who subjugated us to exile, God was the one who sent his children, the Jewish people, the princes of the world, 
God was the one who subjected us to exile. And the Rebbe says a very powerful statement. He says, it's not with our will that we ent- that we came into exile. We did not choose this. God chose it for us. And it's also not with our will that we will leave the exile. Because we will not go out of this exile until God will choose to take us back home. Amazing statement. This was also an answer to the Zionists who believed that by their own power, they will bring about the Messianic era. The Jews should arm and fight and thereby bring about. The Rebbe was not in favor of that. Now we need to do it. No. The redemption is going to come when God will choose. It is God's, it's God's thing. But he said, I do want to tell you something to everybody. To the Jews need to know this and the non-Jews and the Gentiles need to know this. That when God sub- subjugated the Jewish people for the duration of whoever long it is, which at that time, it's now it's already close to 2,000 years, that the Jewish people are under certain oppression of various different governments, that oppression and that, and that divinely mandated power that God gave to those who tormented Israel, God gave them the power to do so, that that power is only to subjugate the Jewish body. Inflict wound and pain and sometimes even, God forbid, death. Because Hitler couldn't kill six million people had God not given them the authority to do so or the power to do so. And we don't understand how, why, and what. That's not, that's not a question that we can ever answer. But that's just what it is. But that power that he had is only on our bodies and not on our soul. Our souls were never submitted to exile. Which means that when it comes to matters of our observance, our matters of our religion, our matters of our servitude to God, no nation has the right to tell us whether we can do a mitzvah or not. We are free, even during exile, they have absolutely no authority to tell the Jewish people whether you can, you know, keep your laws of ritual slaughter when it comes to eating animal food, whether you can keep the Shabbat, whether you can... Um, you know, circumcise your children, whether you can do all the other mitzvahs or study Torah. The Romans tried to oppress us on this, they failed. The Greeks tried to oppress us on this, and they failed. The Babylonians tried to do this, and they failed. Stalin tried to do it, and he failed. And so has been throughout all of history. And the proof is, because I, small little me, put on to fill in today, boxes on my head. The same boxes that 3,000 years ago Moses put on his head. And they tried to get rid of those boxes forever. And you know what? I put that filling on in the airport as well. And by American Airlines or by United Airlines, even when I'm stopped off in the middle of Texas, where most people didn't really see these boxes before. And proudly I stand there and I wear these boxes on my head. Why? Because this is what God commanded me to do. It's a godly mitzvah. And not just me. Millions of Jews do this all over the world. And no one can stop us and no one will ever stop us. And we will triumph over every single force that will try to stop it because no, it's not stoppable because it's God's will. That's important to understand. And the previous Rebbe wanted to instill this in all the Hasidim that they should know that when it comes to God's will in all Jews, that the, Ru- the Russian government has no authority over that. And therefore they should stand fast, st- st- stand steadfast. And yes, a lot of blood might be spilled. Some of them might die keeping this. And some of them might die and maybe even their children will die. But you know what? Eventually they will have carried through the divine torch in this world. And because of their sacrifices, 
other Jews are keeping the mitzvot and Judaism continues and God's desire to have a home in this world will triumph and prevail over all the enemies and of all those who want to stop it. So this is the generally what the previous Rebbe therefore said at that on that platform. What incredible words. Unbelievable. And you see, 70 years the Russians continued their oppression on Soviet Jewry. 70 years. And then the Soviets completely disappeared off the map. The KGB is gone. Their entire forces, it's gone. And the few Hasidim, the few Hasidim, without arms, without tanks, but with a stubborn soul devoted to, to the literally to death, to keep their mitzvahs, and yet they're here. And if you go and travel across Russia, I challenge anyone over here to do so. Go for a tour. Go from, from city to city across the previous Soviet Union, and you'll find yeshivas, study halls. You'll find Jewish ritual baths, which are called mikvahs. You'll find kosher restaurants. You'll find Jews studying Torah, children all over doing hundreds of Chabad houses across the country. Unbelievable. Because holiness and godliness prevails. Now, this is all an introduction to today's class, and I did not expect it to take so long. Wow. So I'm going to have to do the rest of the class pretty fast. But let's understand what is the inside drive, what is driving the previous Rebbe. So the Rebbe, again, the seventh Rebbe, explains what his father-in-law said. And the Rebbe asks a couple of questions. First of all, the most obvious question. The Friediger Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, quotes the, the verse from King Solomon. Let God be with us like he was. And he explains. What's his explanation? His explanation is, even though we are not like our forefathers, why are we not like them? Now you can say we're not like them because they were more spiritual beings. We can say we are not like them because they were holier. We can say we are not like them because they were smarter. We, uh, we can give all kinds of explanations why we're not like them. But he chooses one thing about them. He says we are not like them because they were willing to give everything up for Torah and mitzvot. They were willing to sacrifice their lives. Like we know, uh, Avram Avinu, Abraham, was thrown into, the, into a furnace because he, he wasn't going to, because he was going to hold on to his monotheistic belief. And he stood up against Nimrod, who was then the pagan ruler who believed in all the idols. And he saw, saw himself also as a god. And when a- and Abraham didn't want to bow down to him and defied him completely, he threw him into the fire. And that's really where, where the Jewish um, 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 stubbornness and 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 um, what is it called uh, um, mar- martyrdom, which has always been the 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 the, the, the st- stamp of pride for the Jewish people of how Jews were willing from all across the board. It all comes to us from from Avram Avinu. So the Friedrich Rebbe says they were willing to give up their lives. Isaac stuck out his neck and allowed himself to be slaughtered for God's sake. At the end, God said no, but Isaac on his part was willing to do it. This shows on their sacrifice, willingness to die. We're not like that, which is obvious question. What do you mean we're not like that? If you tell me that they were holier for whatever, they were smarter, okay. 
But if you're telling me that they were willing to sacrifice themselves and we're not, the previous Rebbe was just sitting in a three-week dungeon where, where they were murdering people over there for doing exactly what? For doing what he did. And it wasn't like they caught him by surprise. The previous Rebbe was already years, every single day expecting this arrest to happen because he was defying them, the Soviets, outright. He was, he was the running and underground operation, which was completely in defiance of their, he, the Friedrich Rebbe felt that it's, that it's permitted according to law. But they, obviously, you know, didn't like it. And they were going to, and they can create libels, as we discussed last week, and do whatever they want against it. So he knew any second, he lived for the last, I don't know how many years since the, the last 10 years. He lived in a constant state of self-sacrifice because he knew that in any second they can kill him. And yet he was doing that. Not only that, but he was inspiring all of his Hasidim to do the same, to risk their lives. So they were living. It wasn't just a moment of sacrifice. This was a decade of self-sacrifice completely in the most literal sense. You're willing to die for God. So how is he saying we're not like our parents who they, and therefore they deserve God to be with them, but we not. The Rebbe tries to give two possibilities. We can say that maybe he was talking about the rest of the Jewish people, not just about himself and his few close, uh, you know, uh, devoted followers. And that's why he was saying, because he said, mir, we. But the Rebbe says we can't say that, because in the word mir, which is a word in Yiddish, it includes himself as well. And he definitely was on a level of sacrifice. And if you're going to argue and say it's because of his humility, because a tzaddik is a humble person, but humility doesn't mean, you know, if I never, ever, ever say a word of gossip and I walk around and I say, oh, I'm humble. I don't want to say I'm humble. I, you know, I say gossip all day long. That's simply being self-deceiving. It's 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 being self, self uh, what is it called? Not not deceiving. It's, um, it's, it's being in a, in denial. You know, it's, 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 it's fooling yourself. That's not, that's not humility. Humility is not when you don't recognize, you know, a quality that you have. Or humility is when you recognize that the quality that you have is not given to you from you. It's given to you by God and so on and so forth. That's the humility. But to go and say something that is just totally not true. I mean, he is sacrificing himself. And if he's sacrificing himself, what is he saying over here? That we're not like our parents who were willing to lay themselves on the line for Torah and mitzvot. He's doing the same thing. That's the question. The other question the Rebbe asks is, in his beginning opening statement, he said, remember, I, I emphasize this, God should be with us and God will be with us. He, that's how he translated the verse. He should be with us and he will be with us. And the Rebbe asks, these are two, these are two, two opposite statements. He should be with us as a prayer. He will be with us as a promise. How do you translate, how do you say them both in one? Is he praying or is he promising? In one breath. And he made an introduction. He said, we're, we're asking God. We are praying to God. Mir betin. Betin means we are praying. So he's now praying. If he's now praying, how is he saying? How is he saying if we are praying? How is he saying we are asking? I'm sorry. How is he saying that, that, uh, uh, that, we, that he will be? It, it would be it would make sense like this if he first said the prayer and when he concluded he would close the book the prayer book and he would say 
You know what? I'm sure God heard our prayers. And because he heard our prayer, for sure God will be with us. But he included the promise in the prayer. So the prayer and the promise are, 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 are two opposite types of feelings. Two opposite expressions. That's the idea. The next question the Rebbe asks is on the Pasuk itself. It says, Yehi Hashem imanu. God should be with us. When you say somebody should be with someone else, the with, the one that's being with someone is always secondary to the, to the, to the one that they're being with. If I say, I'm going, who's coming with me? What's the point? Who's coming with me? The main role is being played by the main goer, the one that's going. Um, you, you ask someone to do something and you say, can I, can you go so-and-so? And you say, yeah, I'll do it, but I don't want to go alone. Okay, so I'm sending him with you. So what is the point with you? It means to support you. You're still the main role. You're still going to be the main spokesman. If, But this person is going along with you. The words God should be with us implies that we are the primary entity over here and God is coming along to be supportive, which is a little bit strange thing. How can you claim that you're the main thing and God is being with you? Now, the question is not on the previous Rebbe because the previous Rebbe was not the one who innovated this verse. The question is on King Solomon. Shlomo Melech says, let God be with us, implying that we are doing pretty well. We're pretty strong. We're hoping that God will lend some support They'll be with us. That's the question. How is it that God is only with you? So, to answer this last question, he explains as follows. Uh, There's no question, obviously, that God is and we are secondary to God. And we're servants to Hashem and so on and so forth. But there are certain types of service in which the the inspiration to the service, the inspiration to the to the to the connection to what you're doing, is primarily being being affected by 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 Hashem. Hashem is by God. Our God is driving the service, even though you're the one who is serving, but you're being inspired because God is making you serve Him. And um, for instance, there is the idea of serving God with love. How does a person serve God with love? Obviously, serving God with love involves a certain choice on our end. We're choosing to pay attention to God and then to love him. When we choose to pay attention to God and then to love him, it means that we're doing something. We're obviously making that choice. However, if we think about it deeply, we realize that even though there is somewhat of ourself involved over here, but most of the work that needs to be done is being done by God. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is like this. In order to love God, obviously, you got to get to know God. And that takes work. You got to study, you got to learn, you got to meditate. And when you meditate and you come to an understanding on the awesomeness and the greatness of God, then you'll love him. But the love that you're loving God is a reaction to God being lovable. Meaning most of the work in order to love God was done by God. God is so awesomely great 
and so awesomely magnificent and so awesomely kind that you can't help but to love him. So you'll say, how come there are billions of people who couldn't care less about God and they're not paying attention? Because they just didn't pay attention. Because they never looked and they never saw him. Had all these people seen, in other words, had they stood for a moment and appreciated that everything they see in the world is God's grace and God's kindness. You know, the, uh, they just released, I saw in the news today, the first day pictures from the new telescope in which they're seeing the vastness of the universe like they've never seen it before. Literally thousands and thousands of galaxies. This is already a way greater advance of the Hubble telescope that they use till now. So now it's like on a whole other level. And one can see through this day, it's like and the enormity of the universe. When one also appreciates that this is not just an accident that just happened and stands on its own, but one recognizes the creative design of an enormous creator who with spectacular wisdom has created all of this, and you're like awed by the majesty of it, and you realize that he did it all for free. He didn't charge anybody. And he created us and he gave us all the pleasures and all the delights and all the beautiful experiences. And, he, and, 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 and more than everything, he allowed us to connect to him and to know him and to serve him. You can go on and on. And he provides us with miracles. And he's involved notwithstanding the fact that he is creating such a super universe that's endless. He is involved in the most minute little detail of detail. God is literally involved in getting me uh, a pickle during lunch. He could have given me lunch without a pickle, but he wants me to have an extra delight. So he said, here, Rabbi, here's a pickle as well. You know, it, it would have been fine without the pickle. You know, you get a little spicy mayo for your sushi. Not only do you have sushi, but you have spicy mayo on it as well. Awesome. That's crazy. That's a God. And, and, and to realize that God himself is involved with that, because that's what the, we learn in Hasidus. There's nothing in the world that Hashem is not meticulously overseeing to the littlest detail. How can you not love God like that? How can you not go crazy with love? Now, who did most of the work? You did the most of the work or he did the love? You didn't build up God that God should be that awesome, lovable being, and now you love him? He is incredibly attractive. He is like spectacular. And as much as we know, it's, it's nothing to his true spectacular greatness. The work we need to do is to open up our minds, open up our eyes a little bit and take in his majestic greatness. And then that itself, by us taking in his majestic greatness, that itself compels us almost to love him. So that kind of service, the service of love, is coming from above. It's not coming from you. Again, Obviously, there's participation because a person can choose to shut themselves down and live in their agnostic little shell of ego, of self, of, 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 of denial, of, 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 of truth. And uh, yeah, you could do that. So obviously, you have to open up the window. You have to open up your eyes a little bit to look. But once you look, you can't help but not love it. So the love is really an impression that is impressed upon you by Hashem, not by you. So therefore, the service of love is primarily due to God, not to you. It, in the words of Hasidus, it comes to us through revelation from above. Divine revelation causes us to love him.
And therefore, love is not the primary service to God. Because anything that's coming to us from above means that we're not serving, we're just reacting. The real, real, real service to God is when it's coming from us. And that is more the service of fear. Now, when I say fear, I don't mean the negative kind of fear that is so hated in America. Like, I think the fear, but fear, and all that kind of thing, that fear is considered such a negative. In Judaism, the true fear is a very, very positive trait. And actually, it connects us to God on a much deeper level than with love. We're not talking a fear of punishment, that God is so powerful, he can, you know, throw me into hell and burn me a million times. That's not, that's not the fear what we're talking about. We're talking about the overpowering sense of God's enormity and greatness, and we shrivel and we become tiny and small in his presence. Now, in order to feel fear, since fear is not about self, you see, love is, is about self. Because when you're loving something, is because that which you're loving, you feel is good for you. Such an awesome, kind God. He's so kind. I want to get closer to his kindness. It, 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 it. How can I, like, I want to get closer to that kindness. I want to attach myself more to this super being. So it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a, it doesn't cancel self. It doesn't surrender self, quite on the contrary. It's an expansion of self. It's an expansion of me. I am getting more of what I want. I can be a foolish person and, lo- and, and, and chase after the tiny little uh, um, um, superficial pleasures and 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 or superficial relationships. In other words, I can choose after I can I can love uh, some superstar who knows how to sing a song on a guitar, and, and therefore I can, and I obsess my whole life of of you know or some person who knows how to take a, a stick and hit a ball, and if I get a ball with their signature, I'm like I've made it in life because this guy who hits a ball, you know, <laughs> he's a World Series champion and he. And he hits the ball and therefore I'm like, awesome. I got close to the most awesome thing. Or I can spend the very resources of my life to getting close and closer to the creator of the universe. To this infinite being. So that's a smart way of enhancing myself. So it's still a, a, an expansion of self. It's not, a, it's not a surrender of self. It's an increasement of self. It's just being wise and directing the self towards something worthwhile pursuing and eternal and not fleeting and not momentary. But fear is a whole different experience. Fear is not a fear. What does fear do? Fear minimizes the self. It doesn't expand self. In fear, I become less. I become less. I become tiny and small. And I, and, and, and who fills the space that I filled till now? If, I, if my ego filled, you know, uh, let's say, uh, I'm just going to give a diameter of 12 feet. I'm using a physical idea for that, but you understand what I mean. A certain space that I fill, and now that I'm suddenly feeling God's presence so strongly and that I hardly take up two inches, two by two, I mean, there's very little I now. I feel so powerful God's presence. Since that involves the shriveling and the negation of self, it takes more work to do that. Self-work. I need to think about God much more to bring myself. Again, not fear of punishment. Because fear of punishment, again, is I'm thinking just about me. I don't want to get hurt. It's not about me. I'm actually feeling you, God. I'm feeling your awesomeness and your greatness. So fear takes more work of the self. 
especially, especially when we're dealing with a different kind of a fear. In fear itself, there's many, many layers and levels of fear. There is one that fear that particularly that we're talking about is the fear that a subject feels in front of their king. That's an absolute fear. When a subject stands in front of their king, they tremble in awe in front of their king. Again, if the king is a tyrant and the king is a is just a you know someone who's a, a, a power grabber and someone who dominates because for the whatever. I'm not talking about that kind of a king. Talking about a benevolent, kind, good, wonderful, incredible, wise, caring, compassionate ruler whose subjects are honored. It's their highest calling to be of his service. And they they elected to become his servants by choosing their king. No one came and opposed themselves upon them. They chose their king. And they choose their king. And willfully and happily, they all march to the coronation. They found someone that they believe could be worthy to be their king. And they happily bow down to him and accept him as their king. Once he's their king, they fear him. Because once he's their king, he has absolute authority over them. And again, it's no more, I'm not talking over here about the fear of the punishment. Even though that's there as well. He has, he has power even over their life. But the trembling of awe is because you feel your insignificance in front of your master, in front of someone who is your absolute. It's almost like you belong to him. And therefore, you fear before him. Now, that kind of fear, we think about it for a moment, is due completely to the fact that you've accepted your king. It is due completely to us. It's not, it's, meaning it's coming from the person, it's not coming from the king. And where do we see this? You see, if you're born into a kingdom where you're naturally a subject because you were born living in Austria. So when you're born in Austria, you I'm talking about a few hundred years ago when there was an Austrian king. So now you're automatically a subject of the king, whether you like it or not. But we're talking in a case where, again, you were around when the king was not king. And now the king is appointed king. And why is the king a king? Because you elected him and you subjugated yourself to him. And the fear of it is coming from the fact that you appointed the king. And what do I mean by that? Let's explain that a little better. Let's say you appointed the king. He's your king. Again, he's not someone who's out to hurt you. You just fear him. When you walk into his, because you're a subject, it's hard for us to relate to this because we don't really have that relationship today with kings because we don't have kings. We don't have a monarch. But when there were kings, people would shiver walking in front of their king. Not because if they'll do something wrong, they'll chop my nose off, but because they just felt this awe of their king. Now, what happened if the, the same day that you're in the palace, the king of France came to visit the king of Austria. And you're walking in and meeting both the king of France and the king of Austria. And it's possible that the king of France has got even, the French, uh, he's richer than your king. He is more powerful. He has a greater army. And he might be even more sophisticated and more knowledgeable. He speaks more languages and he's more of a, he has, he has greater qualities. And he's, he's part of a lineage that goes back longer than the Austrian Empire. He goes back, you know, an extra 500 years. I'm just giving an example. I'm trying to look for the various different, and he's wealthy and he's powerful and his reverence is everywhere. 
but you're an Austrian subject. You're not a a a a a uh, a, a French subject. So even though the king has got all these enormous power, and you can love him if if he's lovable. I don't know. Again, if we're talking about he's a, if he's a benevolent, if he's a king. I don't know which. I'm, I'm not such a, so 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 knowledgeable in history. Which kings were the good kings that everybody loved, and which ones were the hated ones? But whatever. It is, let's say he's a very very benevolent and kind person and a really good king. But if he's not your king, you don't fear him. I mean, you have respect, and I'm not saying you don't fear at all. You wouldn't insult him, but you don't tremble before him. But in front of your own king, you tremble. If it was due to the king, to him, if the fear is coming because the king is making you fear him, if the fear is coming from the king and because of his greatness, and the French king is just as great as the Austrian king. I should fear the French king as much as I fear the Austrian king. The difference why I don't fear the French king, because him I didn't say, I never accepted him as my king. Him I accepted, he's my ruler. And if I accepted him, then I tremble before him. And obviously the same also applies to God. God's kingship is not a kingship that comes from above, even though... Whether we like it or not, God is the king of the universe. But God wants a relationship with us. Part of our relationship is we should choose him as our king. We do that every year, Rosh Hashanah. And we, in fulfillment, when God tells us actually the, the mitzvah of appointing a king, which is one of the mitzvahs, even a human king, the verse says, Saim tasim alecha melech. You should place upon yourselves a king. It's very interesting. It doesn't say, listen to the king that I will appoint for you. God could have said, when you come into the land of Israel, I will appoint the king and you better listen to him and obey everything he said. It doesn't say that. You place upon, you choose someone, you put upon him because kingship cannot be. The fear of a king can only be when the subjects willfully accept the king to be their king. So in our relationship with God, we need to accept God every morning as our king. Rosh Hashanah, especially once a year, we we choose. We say, God, I elect you as my king. And once I elect you as my king, I fear you. I fear to disobey you. And I fear that I everything you want of me, I will do out of, out of love as well. But also out of fear. Now, let's go, let's understand this a little deeper. Why is it that love could be impressed upon a person from the outside, but fear, and especially this type of fear of subjugation, of a complete subjugation, must be derived from a person's choice? It's when you accepted the king, then you will fear him. Why can't it be placed upon the person? So the answer is just a very, um, a very special idea. Let's look at a human being like an onion. Why am I using the example of an onion? Because an onion, you can see there is... An onion has like a, the, the, the center middle of the onion, and then there is all the, the uh, layers, layers and layers and layers. So a human being is that way. There is your core self, and then there are, there are the, 
the various different layers of self, which are more from the inside to the outside. And then there is the most outerst layer of the person. That's our most external self. And then there's the deeper self. So here is a very important idea that we learn in Hasidus. And that is that outside influence can only, in outside impression, forces from the outside, and even if it's a very strong force, can only impress and can only have an impact on a person to a certain degree, to a certain layer. In other words, externally, at the moment, for instance, in my consciousness today, if you're very impressive, you can catch my attention. And as a result of that, I will today be thinking about you all day long. And I will all be, because you're impressing yourself, projecting yourself or impacting me from the outside. Now, the more powerful you are as a person or as a being or as a teacher or as a uh, whatever it is, the deeper your influence can de- can can influence, the, and therefore the more influence you can have, and actually like a teacher, like a um, a, a an educator, people who are are very very good teachers and very devoted teachers and masterful teachers and educators, can actually shape and form the student and the child tremendously. You can have huge impact on a person on a direction in the person's life. You can have huge impact on a person's behavior. You can even have huge impact on a person's ideology and, and world outlook. You can have impact on a person's emotions and so on and so forth, the things that they will love, things they, they won't love. But there's always a limit of how far in an external influence can go. The very, very nucleus of self, at the very deepest point of self, over there you exist from within yourself with no outside influence. And over there, the only one who can influence at that place is you yourself can make a choice. At the, your inner core, you yourself can make a choice. That's why as much as you influence a child to do and you educate the right way, a child has to at the end want to and make a decision to want to. Of course, good influences will probably Affect that that the child should want to, but if the child doesn't want to, and therefore brushes it off, it won't. It won't have, you have to get the participation that the child as well should say, "I agree," and this is the way I want to live. And sometimes parents do whatever they try to influence, 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 and even their good intentions and good things, and the child it just they're not interested. They don't want to. So there has to be the want of the person to be able to. Move yourself at your very core. Since subjugating yourself as a subject, what does it mean a subject? A subject doesn't only mean that in behavior I follow the laws. A a true subject, I'm talking about in a real kingship, king-servant relationship. It's hard to find that other than with God because in human relationships, it's never worth it to subjugate yourself on such a deep level. Because no matter who the person is, why would you want to do that? So there's usually on a, 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 when it, but if it's a king that is being, you're appointing because he's, 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 you see him as a godly being like King David or King Solomon or, or someone or Mashiach talking about Mashiach, the ultimate human being and who's going to actually rule over the entire world. And mankind is going to willfully Accept his kingship. What does that mean? 
not only that my my behavior you can inspire my behavior not only can you inspire my thinking and my emotions or tell me how to think or direct my thinking and my emotions no the king owns the people completely they belong completely to him in order for for that to happen in a real way so if you're a tyrant and you're just so you might own me but you don't really own me because if i'm a free spirit i can you know whenever i have a chance to wiggle my way out of your jurisdiction i do it because i never from the deepest place i'm still a free person so you might keep me in a dungeon you might force me you can do all these are all external pressures but you can't you can't get me at my core because i'm in control of that not you So to really, really, truly have a true subject or to really be a subject of a king, you need to make the decision that I am now relinquishing my ownership on me, which naturally we all have ownership on self. I am relinquishing my ownership on me and I'm surrendering it to you completely. And now I'm going to live my life for you. Obviously, you wouldn't want to do that with anybody other than God, right? But for God, yeah. For God, I'm going to relinquish my entire existence for you, for your will. and for Because I know you are the, the reality of reality. And you're truer than me. And therefore, I am relinquishing my entire existence for you. And that's what it means to accept God as your king. To be completely his subject. By your very identity. That God can't do with can't do for you that you need to do that's an amazing thing hashem can't do that because if he's doing that then it's not it's not touching either he's abolishing you fine god can abolish you but if he wants you to be you and you to be his subject and being a subject to a king means relinquishing complete self at the very nucleus of your existence the nucleus of your existence no one can influence only yourself Rabbeinu Bechaya, one of the great um, uh, earlier Jewish scholars, makes a fascinating statement. The sages say that there is an Otsar, that God has a special treasure of Yerashamayim, a fear of heaven. Fear of heaven is called a, it's, it's, it's the fear of heaven. God keeps that fear of heaven in a special treasure trove. He asks the question, what does that mean? A treasure trove of fear of heaven. When a king has a treasure, where does the king's treasure come from? The trings, the king's treasure. Okay. If he's a king who's descendant from kings, he can, he can inherit he can inherit the treasures. But really, a king, if you go back to the first king, he's inheriting it from his grandfather. We received it from his grandfather. Fine. But the first king was, was appointed king by people. And how did he become wealthy? How did he get all the treasure? It's because he collected the taxes and the people gave and gave and gave. And from their monies that they gave him, he collected his treasure. So the king's treasure is something the king doesn't create the people need to give it to him 
And then he is, of course, the richest of, of everybody because he received the treasures they all gave to him. Now, God owns everything. God control owns everything. The whole world is his. So he doesn't have a treasure because a treasure is something that he collects from everyone else. What's the one thing that God doesn't have and he must receive from us? The only ones who can give him ourselves is us. To give yourself away, he can't do that. You need to give yourself away. And therefore, that's the only thing that he has a treasure. When we elect, when we choose to give ourselves up for a higher calling, to serve our God, to serve our creator, by me deciding that I'm giving myself and I'm making God more important to me than my own immature desires and wants. And God becomes the the, the anchor, the source, the root of my life. And his will... Be, is now my will. And everything God wants of me, I am here to do, even at the expense of some comforts, some sleepless nights, some extra work, some giving up on various different things that I love, but I'm not having them because my divine mission is calling for me now to do so and so. That giving myself up for him, he doesn't own that. He doesn't have that. Because he, now, he's everything. He owns everything. No, he doesn't. Because he he created us to be us. And he, and his pleasure is that we as us should serve him. That choice to serve him, we need to choose it. So we need to give that to him. And that's why only when it comes to fear of God, which the fear of that we're talking about is the fear of the king, which has to do with, as we spoke earlier, the people surrendering themselves to the king. That is us. That is coming from us, not from him. Therefore, he says, going back to the verse that King Solomon says, let God, our God, be with us. Let God, our God, be with us. The meaning of with us, let Hashem be with us. The meaning of with us, which means, remember we said earlier, what was the question? We are the primary. And he is only with us. He's secondary. How can God be secondary to you? The answer is that when we are talking about fearing God, us giving ourselves over to God, yes, in this particular thing, God is secondary. What do we mean secondary? Hashem can help you. Hashem can help you give that. It's very hard for a person to to make to make that decision. When I was learning this today, I was thinking to myself, wow, on the deepest level, have I made that decision? I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm, it's hard for me to say that I did. I, I, I haven't. I'll admit I have never. To make such a... That, that means that God supersedes me completely and it's his will over my will. And that means... You know, once in a while I run an errand or maybe five hours a day. It means oh, my entire being, 24-7, all my life, God is, is, and I'm here just to execute his will. Not me. None of me. Probably a whole lot of things that I do I wouldn't do. And a whole lot of things of doing good that I would do. This is very hard. This is serious business. To really accept God as your king 
Tomorrow you're a different person. You wake up in the morning and the first list in your head has nothing to do with what you want. It's, it's what does God need from me today? Check it off. One after another. It's every moment. What, what am I needed for? Now what I need now? This is really, really serious. It's a whole identity shift. So when we're struggling, and I know that I, I hope I don't forget this discourse, and I hope I'll, 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 I'll sit with this at least for a couple of weeks and struggle with this, and hopefully with God's help, before Mashiach comes, since Mashiach is coming now, then a second before now, I should be able to make that move and give myself over completely that, that the way we should all do that. So when we're asking God's assistance, assist us. Sometimes when you're like, you know, you need an extra push to be able to make that, to push yourself, to jump into the water, you want to do it. It's like when you go, you, you want to do swimming, you want to swim laps in a pool, you ever go to a pool and you really want to do it, but it's still too cold. And you know you're going to go and you're going to uh, shiver. So you need a little extra cheering. So it says God can cheer you on to make that decision, but it will always be your decision. He's not going to push you into the pool. You got to decide to jump into that pool. In life, this is the point where we got to do it. And that's why King Solomon is saying, God should be with us, supporting us from the background, because in this particular thing of giving myself over completely to you, he can't do it. Fear of God, fear of a king must come from us. So the Rebbe says, first of all, this is just so amazing. There's such depth over here. Such unbelievable depth of understanding. But then the Rebbe says, just like it is in fear of Hashem, that this has to come from your decision. It can't, it, this is not God imposing it upon you or, or making it or impressing it. Because again, everything that has to do with your very identity can't be impacted by the outside. It must come from the inside out. It can't come from the outside in, from any external force. The same is also when it comes to self-sacrifice. What's called in Hebrew, what's called Mesirat Nefesh. The serious nefesh means giving yourself over totally to die for God's death. It doesn't mean I say death, but it means to completely give yourself over to utter selflessness, which sadly throughout history, Jewish history, it meant many times to die for the sanctification of God's name. I mean, to allow your life to be taken from you, even meaning to do a mitzvah, even when it's dangerous and even when it costs you your life. The ultimate devotion. That's called Mesiris Nefesh. Now that, that, that act of giving yourself over, that's also coming from your core. You can't do that from your outer peripheral. When a person decides I'm going to die for something, what does that mean? You're willing, you're relinquishing your entire existence to God. That Mesiris Nefesh, relinquishing yourself completely, can't, is not from the outside, it's from you. Now, let's take that a step deeper. There's two levels in, in self-sacrifice for mitzvot, for, 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 for Torah and mitzvot observance. Because you remember, the, the Rebbe is explaining his father-in-law's talk that he's doing, giving on the platform in the midst of him going from prison to exile for his selfless and self-sacrifice for Torah and mitzvot. So that's an act of self-sacrifice. But now in self-sacrifice as, as well, which we say generally has to be you doing it. It can't be God is not imposing. God is not impressing it upon you. It is where you have to declare your 
your willingness to do this. But even in that, there's two levels. Because we know that there are certain commandments which we are obligated to die for and not violate. And one of them is idolatry. Okay, I'm not allowed to serve an idol, even at the cost of my life. Someone is, God forbid, holding a pistol to my head or to someone's head. You're not supposed to say it on yourself. And say, you know, bow down to this idol or I'll pull the trigger and I'll blow your brains out, God forbid. You have to, you just have to say, you know, pull the trigger. I mean, even if I die, finished, I'm on the, if you're obligated to do so, according to, to, we signed the contract at Sinai that we would do that, basically. We signed the contract at Sinai that we will not kill anybody, even at the cost of our own life. So if someone says to you, here, someone gives you a gun and says, shoot that individual or else I'll shoot you. We have to let the gun drop out of our hand and let that person shoot, God forbid, ourselves. And we die and not to kill someone else. And then there is also certain forbidden relationships. Adultery. Which a person has to die. These are the three cardinal sins. And a person has to be willing. Now, if God, if someone holds a gun to someone's head and says, get that filling off your head. Don't, I don't like those boxes. Don't you ever wear those boxes again or else I'm going to kill you. So the halacha is, take the, you're supposed to take the boxes off your head and not wear the tefillin. Because you don't have to die for wearing tefillin. However, there is a discussion. If, you're a la- if, you, if you choose that you, that you want to wear tefillin at, at all costs, even if it costs you your life, are you allowed to? It's an argument amongst the, the, the halachic. In other words, can a person choose to die for the sanctification of God's name, not to violate a commandment? Of God, even when you're not commended to do so. So, in cases that a person is doing that, which is the case of the previous Rebbe, because when the previous Rebbe, again in 1927, some of the things that he was doing were not things that we were that people were commanded to die for. For example, to keep little children learning Torah is not something that they're commanded to die for. Or having making building the mikvah is not something that you're commanded to die for. That you do it even at the expense of your life. And yet the previous Rebbe was doing all these things. Okay, so now, since in self-sacrifice, we said before, it's something that you need to do. But there are certain times where God is commanding you to do so. So when God is commanding you to do so, we can say that even though you have to choose to listen, because after all, it's, your, it, it, it's a decision where you have to decide, will, will I actually die for this because God commanded me or not? So it's a choice. And the choice has to still be you. But since still it's a commandment that God is commanding you, I want you to relinquish your life for me in order, not to, in order to, to do this mitzvah, then it's still kind of semi-impressed semi, semi by God, not by us. But when it's a mitzvah which you are doing that God is not even commanding you to do so. Meaning it's a mitzvah. But God never said I want you to die for it. And here you are willfully choosing to even die in order to fulfill this commandment. Even if it means your own giving up your life. Or at least risking your life for a commandment that this is completely a choice. That is we're giving it to God. God is not, God is not even asking us to do so. So it's a devotion 
a, and, a, and, a, and a willingness on the part of person to do it. So and this also implies the same idea that we spoke about earlier. That's why the previous Rebbe, when he's standing on, is saying this prayer. God, be with us, meaning assist us. Help me be able to help me and my, and my, and my followers to be able to live and to give you our lives. We're the ones that are giving. That's why he says with us. With us means you will only be the background assistance. You will only be the cheerleader over here, kind of assisting from the background, cheering us on to do it. But the main act is us. And that's why he uses the term imanu, with us. He's asking for the, so it's, a, it's an amazing thing. He's asking for divine assistance to be successful and to be able to inspire in all of his followers such devotion that they should be willing to give their lives up even when they don't have to, which is a complete choice coming from them, and yet they should do so. Now, God, please help us out with this, that we should be successful. Now, the Rebbe says, however, however, this itself, this itself could be done in two ways. We just explained that the word imano means When you say someone should be with someone else, that means he should be secondary to us. But the the, the Rebbe says, but if you look into 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 um, from various other places of Scripture, you see that the word imanu means secondary, but sometimes it means equal. Where do we see that it means equal? Um, Hashem says to Moshe, um, take these people and stand, uh, and, and you should stand um, with them. They should stand with you. It's a verse in, um, in Pasha's Baaloscha, when God tells them to take the 70 men and that you should stand, um, uh, they should go into the OL, Moed, they should go into the tent of meeting, they should go in together with you. So the word says, Imcha, with you, the word Im, with you. And the sages say that over there when it says with you, it means people that are like you. So when you're using the word Imcha, the word Imcha can imply, means secondary, but the word Imcha also means in a certain equation, people that are the opposite meaning. Secondary means they're like much on a much less than you, but like a secondary element. Imcha can also mean equal to you. So when we're saying Yehi Hashem because let me let me let me further influence further prove this, a better word for which would mean completely secondary, a better Hebrew word for meaning completely secondary, would be the word S. And in our case, would mean the word itach, with you. Okay, so we could have said, Yehi Hashem Elekeinu itanu. God, not imanu. Imanu means with us. Itanu also means with us, from the word S. S and im both apply with. 
But the difference between the S and the Im is when you're saying the word S, the Hebrew word S, it implies more secondary. Meaning A and B, A is primary and B is like very, very B, very, very secondary. Imcha is a word that implies two opposites. On the one hand, it implies secondariness. And on the other hand, it implies equal to you. So it's both secondary and equal. I'm not going to get into all the all the proving of that because it will take too much time and I want to get to the point. If the Torah, therefore, if the verse says, God, let God be with us, with the word imcha, not the word itach, it's because there is a certain equivalence. Hashem should be even with us. But didn't we just say that in this mitzvah, that in self-sacrifice that we're talking about over here, God is being secondary. He has to stand in the back because he can't do this for us. This is something that we need to do. So Hashem is very secondary? No. Because this is opening up now an entire depth in the whole thing that we spoke. As deep as we went till now, we're going much deeper now. And we're turning it around the other way now. Imcha means with us, which which means as follows. That just like for self-sacrifice or for accepting God as our king, we're the primary ones doing it. And God is only secondary to us, standing in the background assisting. So he's secondary. In the same way, we're now turning it around. What's the equality? Is that that very, very surrender and that very giving over should be equal to what? It should be equal. It should be equal to I'm, 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 I'm losing it for a moment here. I want to be able to say this clearly. Our surrender to God, again, Hashem's secondary backing up of our decisions to serve him, and therefore we are now serving him, which is, which is, which is primary us, should be in a manner where just like God is secondary to us, we are secondary to him. That's the equality. The, 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 the equalization over here is that we're standing equal to God. God is standing in the background to us, but we are also standing in the background to him. That's the equality. So this will be totally paradoxical. We're just explaining that God is moving to the side in this type of a service where, you, where we are willing to completely change our identity. And accept our, ourselves as a servant of God completely. And with even with self-surrender. To the point of Mesiris Nefesh as we spoke of. Which is all an act of the person. Which, which requires a, a decision and a willfulness on, on us. On our end. Yet it should be in a manner that we are secondary to him. Hold it. Is he secondary to us or we are secondary to him? So here is where the Rabbi introduces a mind-blowing concept. And he says like this, the very idea that 
I am electing God to be my king, and therefore I am completely, willfully giving myself over as his subject, I can do that because I choose to do so, or I can do so because because God deserves that that should be done. In other words, what's the motivation for that very selfless? The act itself is my act, is our act. We need to act in order to do that. It has to be ours. But the question is, what's motivating that? Is that motivated? Is that motivation coming from within me because of me? Or is that motivation coming from, from God? And let me explain that a little better. A person can choose to put God and their divine service above everything else, so much so that they eradicate, as we discussed earlier, every bit of self, and that there is no, there is no, no point in my life where I'm serving my self-interest. My entire being is going to be devoted to God's ultimate desire and plan and whatever God wants of me in this world. But that itself is because that's my ultimate accomplishment. Now, where's it growing from? I recognize how tiny and small and insignificant I am. I recognize that at best I'll live, I'll do a lot of exercise, I'll eat very healthy, I'll live and I'll, I'll let's say, I'll, re- I'll live to 110 years old. Maybe, but you know, life is increasing now. We'll live to 120. Maybe I'll even break some records and I'll live to 130. I'm a little schmendrick, a little peepsqueak in this in, in this endless galaxies of planets. And what am I? A, a little entity of 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 time and space. If I'm worshiping myself and I'm serving myself and I'm and I'm, I'm here to to you know to to um, to make myself a name or make myself important or make myself a, What's the value of that? What's the ultimate value? Really, what's the value? I took care of I took care of a little a little peep squeak being called me, and that's what I took care of. And if you compare myself to the to, to, to the vastness of existence, how important am I already? How important am I? And therefore, I can realize if I can be of service to the king of all kings, to the creator of the universe, to the cre- to the being of all beings, and I can lift myself up and completely give myself as a gift to God, what could be greater to do for me? <laughs> so underlying everything is who? Is a self. A very noble self, a very beautiful self, but still a self. Or I can give myself over to the service of God. Again, me, I have to do it. I'm giving myself over. But what's my motivation? God's will is so important. God's will, God created all of this, and his goodness and his desire, what he wants, the ultimate goodness that he wants should happen in this world is so significant because he wants it because it's his desire. And obviously because of his desire, it's going to be the ultimate, ultimate, infinite, boundless goodness is so important 
that if I can play any role in that, I have to do so. How can I not? How can I not not play a role and be part of it? Not because I want to, to not because I want to be part of it, because it, 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 it should happen. It should happen. Now, how can I contribute that it should? I, I will grab everything I can, including my entire self, and give myself too. I'll give all my time. I'll give my effort. I'll give my resources. I'll give my energies. I'll give my, my mind, my heart, my being. I'll even give my life if necessary. It requires, it is so vast, it is so important that everything should be completely devoted to it. If necessary for me to give me too, I have to. How can I not? So it's not a choice that is serving me. It doesn't begin with me. It has nothing to do with me. So even though the person is giving themselves, but they're giving themselves Incomplete. What's generating the giving of self is not themselves. They're completely secondary in their giving of themselves. So here's like the two opposites coming together. God, you have to do it. That's you. So God is standing in the background. That's the one space where he's not controlling is whether you will give yourself or not. That's you to make up. So you're sec- So he's secondary to you, but you're secondary to him because why are you giving yourself? Not because you are important. I should make my life the most important life, and therefore I should reach the highest levels, and I should reach even a level where I give myself over for God. Then I'm still stuck in I, and it's me again. But if I sense the vastness of him and his desire and his want, and therefore it should be, and whichever possibility I can play a role in that, I have to do it. How can I not? That's the, How can I not? It needs to be. I can't give him you because I don't have control over me, but I have, I have control over me. So that's why I'm giving me because it should be. And whatever I can play, be part of it, I do it. That's the real meaning of Mesiras Nefesh, the Rebbe's. You're giving it your all, you're even your your everything, but even that is so refined. It's so not about you. It's so not about self. It's so about God. You have a self, but that self is motivated. You need to have a self, or else you couldn't give yourself. But your that self is so selfless. It's so overpowered by something bigger than self. In Hasidus, it explains the difference just to, to see that, that in, in, in contrast. There were two people that symbolized Mesiris Nefesh. Mesiris Nefesh means the, the dying Al-Kiddush Hashem, the, the, the giving yourself over for the sanctification of God's name. Two people. Avram Avinu, the icon of Mesiris Nefesh, Abraham, and the second one is Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, the Romans. You hear this? Rabbi Akiva taught Torah in the time of the Bar Kokhva uprising, 50 years about, 50, 60 years after destruction of the Second Temple. When it was forbidden to teach Torah and to do practice Judaism in, in Israel. He was one of the great sages. When he was caught, he was already over 100 years old. They combed 
his skin off his body with metal combs. They tortured this holy sage to death. When they were torturing him with the most horrific, incomprehensible um, um, cruelty, incomprehensible cruelty of, of, of the worst pain that you can't even begin to fathom, Rabbi Akiva was in ecstasy. You can see on his face he was in ecstasy. And he was, and a student said to him, and he was saying, Shema Yisrael. He was saying, Hero Israel, love God with all your heart, with all your soul. And a student said to him, Rebbe, they were able to talk to him while it was happening to him. And they said, Your love to God, we understand, but to this degree, you're suffering like no human being has ever suffered before. You're in agony. They saw that he was physically in pain, but yet at the same time, he was in ecstasy. So he said, all my life, I wanted to fulfill the mitzvah of love God with all your heart and all your soul. All my life, I wanted to fulfill. And the sages say, what does it mean to love God with all your soul? Even if they take your soul, even if they're killing you. And finally, I got to do this mitzvah. I'm finally here when my, the wish, the dream of my life that I can give my flesh of my body up for God. And I'm finally there. Should I not be happy? So he was so, he was suffering, but at the same time, internally, he was in seventh heaven because at this moment, he was able to show complete, such love for God that he give, he's giving God everything. He's even, even willing to go through such suffering to be able to serve Hashem. This was the story. So he's like incredible example of self-sacrifice, of martyrdom. Yet Hasidus says, between Abraham and Rabbi Akiva, there's a vast difference. Rabbi Akiva himself is saying that he wants to die for the sanctification of God's name. In other words, this is something that he desires. This would be the epic experience of his life that he can sacrifice himself for God. So at the very end, why is he sacrificing? Because he's so, he loves God, he loves God so much, and therefore, now this is not meant, God forbid, to minimize Rabbi Akiva, but it's it's showing the subtleties that in Rabbi Akiva's desire to die, he wanted to 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 to, to pass away Al Kiddush Hashem. He wanted he 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 desired. So it was in the end there was some bit of a self gain. What's his gain? That he can do the ultimate sacrifice for God. In Hasidus it says, Abraham, our forefathers, was going to go through, if, if, if they needed to comb him, he would allow himself to be combed to death. If they needed to shred him to pieces, he would have allowed that as well. If he needs to, kill, to, 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 to bring his only one and only son that he loves so more because God is asking him to do so, he does that as well. He will do anything, anything, anything. But Abraham is not looking to do that. Abraham is, has one concern in his mind. In Abraham's mind, there is a burning desire that God wants what, what, what it's what God wants. God wants to fill this world with his knowledge and with his light. And to that, Abraham was devoted 1000%. If necessary to die, I'm dying. If necessary for this, I'll do that too. But it's not, it has nothing to do with it. He, he, he was looking for something. He didn't look for anything. He He's just fulfilling God's will. That's the only thing in his head. What does God, he doesn't hear himself. He doesn't even exist. He doesn't even know that he is. All he knows is the wish, the will of Hashem, and to that he is devoted.
That's the Mesiris Nefesh that the Rebbe is talking about over here. That you, Yehi Hashem Alekeinu Imanu, Kashahoyo Imavaiseinu, as we said before. On the one hand, giving your life up, as we said before, is something you need to do. God can't do it for you. It's your voluntary choice. But on the other hand, what's the moment, what's, what's your inspiration to do that? Not you. The divine cause. Hashem's will is so important. And therefore, the Rebbe says it doesn't make a difference if you're obligated to give your life, if you're not obligated. If, if, you, if a person has become so sensitized, so sensitive to God's will, that when you hear that God wants tefillin or that God wants a, a ritual bath, a mikvah, these are the wills of God. And it must be. It must happen. It, there's no question. It's not a question. Should I do it? Should I risk my life? Should, it has to happen. So if it has to happen, it has to happen. So whatever it is, it happens. So if I can somehow play a role, if it's going to cost me to die and in the course of it, fine, so be it. But the mikvah is going to happen. That's my only question. I don't even know after the person was killed, he doesn't even know that he died doing it. He just knows one thing. It's almost like if you wake him up after he's dead in his grave and you say to him, hi, and he would say, oh, wasn't that cool that I gave my life? No, he'd ask one. The first thing that would come out of this dead person's mouth would be, is the mikvah done? That's it. And if you told him that the mikvah didn't get done, He's not upset that he died because he doesn't even know that he was a part of it. That's not, that's not the issue over here. His question, did the mikvah get done? Is it there? Yes or no? So that's the fusion of self with the divine to the highest level. There is self because, again, you're the one. You're not commanded to do so. So you're volunteering to do it. But yourself is not yourself. Yourself is him. You've so identified with God that he became your I, not you. You have no I outside of him other than his will. That's the point. So the Rebbe says, let's, let's, let's lead this to the end. The Rebbe says, that's the meaning of the request. Hashem should be with our fathers like, we, like he is with us. Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are the fathers. Their devotion to God had both these extremes. Their mitzvah observance, our patriarchs, in their mitzvah observance, in their service of Hashem, had two extremes. What were the two extremes? On the one hand, it was a completely voluntary service. Because it says that that our patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were not commanded to do the mitzvahs. God never told them to wear tefillin. God never said to them to keep Shabbos. They did the mitzvahs before they were commanded because God only commanded it at Sinai. So when they did the mitzvahs, it was a complete voluntary thing. It wasn't that God was commanding them. It was them volunteering to do so. So it was the extreme of service where God is, as we said before, secondary. They're the ones choosing to do so. But why did they do those mitzvahs? Did they do the mitzvahs because they said, oh, mitzvahs are cool. And if we do that, we will do cool stuff. We will do mitzvahs. Or can we like, wow, these are like awesomely God things. And if we do them, we will become godly. Wow, super cool. Or was it that they felt God so strongly 
And it didn't make a difference that God didn't yet command the mikvah, or God didn't yet command kosher, or God didn't yet command Shabbos. They know that God wants mikvah and wants Shabbos. He never commanded it yet, but he wants it. Because the the will of Torah and mitzvahs is an eternal will. It always was, it always will be. He happened to share it at a certain point of time. Before that, he didn't share it. But they know this is his will. And if they know this is their will, they did it. Not because they wanted anything, not that they wanted to even be part of it. They just wanted the will to happen. They know if he wants tefillin, they, they, they got tefillin on. They knew that he, that's why the mitzvahs were done completely because of him, not because of them. Where do we see that? The sages say that the forefathers, they are, they are the chariot. The forefathers are the chariot. What's a chariot? A chariot moves. A chariot is an example of something that is mobile. It's moving. Chariot is, is, a, is a wagon, a horse and a wagon. It's moving places. Now, when something moves, you always got to question what's moving it. The horse is moving it. But why is the horse moving the wagon on this road? The horse is moving the wagon because the rider is riding the horse on this with this wagon. So this whole movement that the thing is moving this way or going in this, going north or going south or going east or going west or going in, into this place or to that place, going up the mountain, down the mountain, Whose will is it fulfilling? Not the will of the wagon and not the will of the horses. The horses are not even thinking, oh, it's so awesome to be the horses of Mr. Goldberg or Mr. Uh, whatever. <laughs> the horses are horses. The will of whoever the rider is, is impressed, is, is compelling the horses to, to, to do it. It's, that's what a, a chariot, a chariot means the will of the owner of this chariot is now permeating the chariot and his will is dictating and, and, and compelling or causing this movement to happen. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, and, 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 um, and Yaakov, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov were Hashem's chariot. It wasn't their will that they wanted something. It was God's will coming through them. So on the one hand, it's the epitome of self-service. On the other hand, that very self-service is not because of them, it's because of God. In other words, they don't, in their, in their lives, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the pillars of the Jewish people, the fathers of the Jewish, Jewish people, there is a complete identification with God. They are, Hashem has filled their space to the, to, the, to the point that there is no self there whatsoever. And even the self that there is, is a self that is motivated into selflessness because of Hashem, not because of them. So now we'll understand. Now we'll understand what the previous Rebbe was saying. Now we'll understand what the previous Rebbe was saying when he was saying that let God be with us. Because he's doing the same, same type of service. And he's saying, even though we're not like our grandparents. What was his emphasis, even though we're not like our grandparents? Even though he too was doing Masira Snavish. Because the, the free, previous Rebbe is talking about the subtlety of it. The previous Rebbe is, is, is like worried. Is our Messiris Nefesh maybe a little bit like Rabbi Akiva more, or is it like, like Abraham? In other words, what's the level of, is the Messiris Nefesh because I want to, to give my life, or is the Messiris Nefesh because, so he's saying, let God be with us like he was with our fathers, even though we're not like our parents. Meaning on such a level of purity, 
where there is no I whatsoever, that's where he's questioning. Am I like my parents or not? The Rebbe says about his father-in-law that that was his humility. He obviously was on that level. That's why he's, but we can understand where, what the, when you're talking about mysterious nefesh and sacrifice, it's the, it, the motivation over here is the most important. What's the real underlying cause of it? Is it self-serving or is it beyond yourself completely? But the Rebbe says, watch this. Since his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe, in truth, really, really completely reached the point of such utter selflessness. And the reason he was fighting the, fight, the battle in the Soviet Union to keep Judaism alive had nothing to do with him and nothing to do with him even wanting to serve God. It was just because God wants Judaism to continue and God wants mitzvahs and that should happen at all costs and nothing can stop that. And even if it means me giving my life together with all my followers, this will happen because it needs to be done, not because of not because I need to do or I need something from it or I want the messianic age to gain nothing. It needs to happen. When someone reaches such a point of nullification, then when he prays, he can promise and pray at the same moment. What's a prayer? A prayer, the Rebbe says, is when you are you and you're praying to God. What's a promise? When a tzaddik gives a promise, a tzaddik can't promise on his own. He's promising because he's an agent of God. That's why he's promising. So when a tzaddik gives you a promise, he is then being a conduit. When a tzaddik is praying, means he's putting on another hat. He's saying, now I'm returning back to me, me not being God, and I'm asking Hashem for, for a thing. The Rebbe says, by most tzaddikim, a prayer and a promise are two hats. But by somebody who hallowed out his self so much that there's no self, and the self that he has, the very self, is the self of the divine. Like when someone does mysterious nefesh and the mysterious nefesh is not at all about him. So it's an I because to do mysterious nefesh there has to come from you. But at the same time, that very I is so permeated by the source. A person like that can pray and promise in combination. Because his self is the same one who can promise. Because it's not him. So there is a self that's praying, but there's also a self that's promising because that self is the divine self. There's absolute oneness. That's Mashiach. I don't have no other words. Mashiach is in this state of being, being Mashiach, but at the same time has no identity. This is, this is Gula light. And when someone is, when you have a general who's on that level of operation, on that level of, of then you're going to win. For sure you're going to win. It might take 70 years. It might take a, the, the, the victory is ours because it's not us, it's God. The secret of the Jewish people. The secret of the ultimate triumph of godliness in the world. Because it came through these heroes who've attained such a, so a way of like kind of seeing it, a way of perhaps seeing it in a visual. If I would have it, I was thinking to bring a board you can color the entire board with one color, whatever color you'd like. And let's say that color is, the best color obviously is the white color because the white is represents the purity of the ain't self that doesn't have any colors. 
then within this whiteness, there is when God, God creates within himself, he creates and he creates these blotches. What are the blotches? The blotches are the density of our own existence where we feel ourselves. And that density is blocking the background of whiteness, that the whiteness is really the truth of our existence as well. There is The truth is really that pure whiteness of the infinite. But our our own blockages of self, our own set, our own statement of my, my body, my life, my like this ugly statement, my body, my choice, my thing, my like, all, the, all, all this all this my, which is the total antithesis to this to this truth, to this eternity, to living with oneness, living in a high. So that my myself that is that is so mm, that's. That's where it, that's where the finite world separates itself from God, and that's death. That's separation. That's density. All of us, we try to poke a little holes inside that blotch and make little spaces that God should come through a little bit. That Sadik manages to like polish and polish and polish and polish until the whiteness comes through completely, and there's nothing there, buddy. And yet he's still a person. That means he's still in an entity. He still has a self. But that self is like completely just, there's no more self. There's just him. But the self identifies. The very self of self is, is the infinite self. I just saw a comment that someone wrote um, on, on the, 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 the last class that I gave because I was talking a lot about the Rebbe. So she the, the Mashiach and so on and so forth. But don't idolize the Rebbe. I think that comes from, a, I, I hear I, that, that it's coming from a very, very, very poor appreciation and understanding of what I'm saying. I'm not idolizing anybody. Idol, we're supposed to die. Not, not. It's an appreciation and understanding of the total opposite of idolatry. You know, who's the idol? We are idols. <laughs> When we worship ourselves and bow down to ourselves by saying, I deserve attention, that means I'm making myself into something other than God. If there's God's will here and there's me, and I say my lunch comes before God's will, that means I'm more important than him. That means I am, I'm saying there is existence outside of God. That's a tzaddik who has, doesn't have that, is the total antithesis to an idol. He doesn't exist. And of course we're blown away by that because it's not about him. We're seeing God through him. So, idolize the Rebbe. <laughs> it's the most ridiculous thing to say. It's not, it's, it's not. The greatness of these people is you, you see the way they're thinking. You see, you see what, what, what's in there. When, when they're concerned that there is ego, what's the problem? I'm giving my life. I am dying. I'm, 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 I'm surrendering. I don't have a second for myself. I don't think about myself for a split second. But I'm worried that the motivation of that is still driven by a little bit of me. You, you, you see what the problem is? You, you, you see what kind of struggle a tzaddik has? And when a tzaddik gets past that, obviously which they do because they struggle with it and they work on it and they get past it. So they're just, it's just, it's, it's just oneness. It's just Hashem. But the beautiful thing is that these tzaddikim, we can connect ourselves to them and they drip, drip, drip these teachings into us and help us also achieve a tiny, tiny bit 
of that purity, of that, of that, of that higher consciousness. And ultimately, with the coming of Mashiach, Mashiach is that ultimate, ultimate, um, Mashiach will bring, first of all, he achieves this on the deepest, highest level. And he will lead all of humanity into higher, higher levels of oneness, of connection, and of attachment to Hashem. May we merit to see all of this now.